This program and its online content contains audio and information about traumatic events that may be triggering to those who have experienced something similar. It may also be unsuitable for younger listeners. Refugees are fleeing rather than going towards something, if that makes sense. They're not expecting to be opened with welcomed arms often, but they're just thinking, is it somewhere I can go that I will be accepted, that I can stay, because that is my priority. Welcome to Migration Trail, the project that uses maps, data and audio to join the dots of a story spread across Europe and beyond. A lot of things changed when the camp at Idomeni on the Greek-Macedonian border was cleared in May 2016. For many migrants, it meant putting their plans to get to Northern Europe on hold, at least for a while. What had been a fluid, temporary situation, with many people seeing themselves as still on the move, at least in theory, started to set into a more permanent state of affairs. Summer 2016 also marked the point where the Greek government and often the army took over running the camps in general, where before they'd been set up by refugees themselves, then supported by volunteers and NGOs. When Idomeni was shut down, the people staying there were transferred to government and army-run camps elsewhere across Greece. But sometimes in a camp, there's a point at which you've been waiting so long for all of the promises that have been made to happen that life simply has to go on, if only out of sheer boredom. And often it's the volunteers and migrants that make that happen, not the government or big NGOs in charge. It took us weeks to get all the wood together, to get the structure, to build it, but right now, today, finally, we install a new community gathering space, which is much more solid here. Dagmar was a volunteer working at the Nia Kavala camp in northern Greece. It was at the edge of a small village on a former military airfield. In August 2016, it looked like the refugee camp you often see in pictures, with rows of white UNHCR tents set up across a field. This was one run by the military, but there were also volunteers like Dagmar helping out. Most of the people here were Syrians, and all of them arrived in Greece before the EU-Turkey deal. Some of them had been at Idomeni, but came here when that camp closed. A lot of these kind of camps were makeshift, because they'd been set up quickly by the army, with whatever extra support there was, schools, community centres, healthcare, run by volunteers or sometimes bigger NGOs. Each family would have their own UNHCR-provided tent where they'd sleep, but for other needs, infrastructure was usually non-existent. And if people wanted to have something like a communal table to sit at in the shade, they often had to build it themselves. It's almost nothing. So what we will do um, is we put one more ping-pong table over there to have at least something. And it, it took us weeks to build this um, because the funding, everything like that, to get some money, to get the wood, all of this, but I just started to build it and then a lot of people from the camp came and helped me, so this design is all made by Mahmoud. The distraction was welcome, but the sense of being stuck was pervasive, and the psychological effects of having to leave one's country and eke out an existence in a camp can cross generations. 
so for a lot of people here they they spend 10 hours a day about thinking how can i get my family through all this how can i bring my family into safe place and so the attention you normally bring to children you don't really have you don't really have that time and the children are totally impatient that running around they're traumatized and they're it's heartbreaking 12 year old boys that never had a pen in their hand and that are not able to write anything and so you have to slowly find a way to get their attention and to bring them together and to start some kind of not really education i mean education is important but to 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 get them curious i mean if he's living in a better place like having a future like really building on something he will be much better but so the actual problem All of the people here were waiting for their interviews to apply for asylum. One family had been given a date six months away. They were living in a tent in an open field. It would have been winter by the time their appointment came round. And the idea that they'd still be in that tent in freezing conditions and snow made them nervous. The only other option was to pay a smuggler to get out of Greece. But the going rates were high. 1,200 euros per person to get to Serbia if you were prepared to walk, and 3,400 euros to get fake papers and fly to Germany, the destination of choice for many, but a price that was out of reach for most families. Slowly, though, the longer people stayed in the camps, the more people adapted to their space, establishing connections. And there's like three swings <laughs> built for the children. But if you wander around, if you wander between the tents, you see a lot of structure. You see actual houses, you s there were swimming pools. People are building a lot for their children. So it's not that big community stuff, but inside the tents or inside that small communities, there's a lot going on. Greece has a lot of these kind of camps. Up until recently, there was one for Afghans in a former airport where people were living in the terminal building. Just behind that, there were more camps in the field hockey and volleyball stadiums that were built for the 2004 Summer Olympics and then abandoned. There are camps in warehouses on the edge of cities or in wastelands surrounding the docks amongst the shipping containers. The camp at Nia Kavala was supposed to be temporary. And when we spoke to Dagmar in the summer of 2016, it was supposed to be shut down the following month. So, as with many camps built with a short term in mind, not a lot of effort was put into it. But more than a year later, it's still open. It's the kind of temporary situation turned permanent that's not just happening in Greece. In May of 2016, Felix Thompson was travelling through Serbia on his way to volunteer in Greece. One day, while he was in Serbia's capital city, Belgrade, he came across the organisation Refugee Aid Serbia. It was a great but small organisation doing what seemed like really essential frontline work in, in a situation where I didn't realise that was happening. I'd just been in a different part of the city and suddenly I came down to the bus station and a thousand people were sleeping rough in a park, being fed, you know, twice a day by volunteers. So Felix started helping out there, instead of continuing on to Greece. As with many EU countries, the situation for migrants had changed there in the months leading up to his arrival. Serbia was a transit country, which in theory it's still a transit country, but that's debatable. And, you know, there were tens of thousands of people going through all the time. You know, each month it was really very fluid. 
So by the time I arrived in May, borders had closed in March, and uh, less and less people were getting through. Despite the closed borders, migrants were still coming through Serbia and trying to get to the Schengen zone of the EU, where there are, in theory at least, no border checks. Without border checks, they can travel more freely and easily to wherever they ultimately want to go. So they arrive either through Turkey, Bulgaria and then into Serbia, or Greece, Macedonia and into Serbia. But in, in any case, people cross through through these kind of forested areas and then as soon as they get into the territory of Serbia, either you'll jump on a bus or a taxi or have a car waiting for you, which almost always bring you to Belgrade, the capital, which is kind of the hub from where you can plan your onwards journey. It's also where you meet family and friends and resource and find, find connections and stuff. Serbia's tough, like, people still come every day, you know, it's still on the route. Got about 200 people maybe arriving a week at the moment. But they just have nowhere to go. So it's much harder for people to leave. Hungary and Croatia are the places that people can go to from here. And it's, it's just really difficult. Like, Hungary has continuously reinforced their border and made it harder to continue. Stricter fences, heat-seeking helicopters, dogs, the beginning of like systematic violence in terms of pushbacks. Hungary is part of the Schengen zone, which makes it attractive in terms of continuing your journey. But it's only letting a handful of migrants through each day and has recently instituted a policy of detaining all asylum seekers in container camps near the border while their claim is being processed. Travelling via Croatia used to be much less desirable because you have to cross two more countries before you get to the Schengen zone in Austria. And while Croatia is seen as easier than Hungary, it's still difficult to cross there. Any migrant caught at its border will be pushed back, often violently. So migrants arriving in Serbia are essentially stuck there, either in official camps or unofficially in abandoned buildings or parks like the one in Belgrade. There's so many people living in a really concentrated part of town in awful circumstances. And their relationship with the locals is at best ignored. You know, they're not talking to each other and at worst tense. Um, which again, is understandable. You have 800 people sleeping in a park where you used to walk your dogs or play with your kids. It's not that they're being scary, but just your spaces are being occupied in ways that are difficult. But I'm not excusing them totally. I think there was, there was room for improvement on both parties. So in November of 2016, the Serbian government intervened. The government issued an open letter to all organisations that said that anyone who was providing a service to migrants outside of the camps had to cease and desist from their activities because you were providing a pull factor for people to leave the camps and to come to the capital to get services, which is understandable in theory. Like, I don't think any of this is a black and white issue. People were sleeping, people were living in really inhumane and dangerous conditions. You know, sleeping rough is in this city. It was minus 20 over winter. It's not nothing. So the idea that the government was trying to put forward of like, people will be safer in camps, I don't think was a, a, a malicious one, but it was just being enforced in a weird way. Some of the camps have been open since the Balkan War of the 1990s, and until a few years ago, still housed Serbia's own refugees from that war. That recent shared history distinguishes it from other countries in Europe. 
I think people were much more understanding when they knew Serbia was a transit country and people were coming and going freely because then it was just about, well, help people who are in need with whom we have an affinity because we have a shared history. But now that people are not really able to move, you know, you've got big refugee camps in small towns and refugees not really going anywhere and being frustrated and bored and not integrated in the local community and, and you know, that's going to be Serbia's big challenge now is to recognize that not everyone will leave. What do they do with the people who want to stay? But I still think overall it's understanding and empathetic, you know, and especially you've got to bear in mind that where we are is one of the first safe havens that people arrive to on their journey. Because if you come from Afghanistan, you've maybe gone Afghanistan, Iran, Turkey, Bulgaria here, all of which of the preceding countries are, I think, systematically worse to refugees even from a local or a state level. But whilst I recognise that accommodation and food isn't always up to scratch, comparative to what most of them have come from, they'll say, like, this is good. And I think the local population feel that. But few of the migrants arriving overland will ever be granted asylum in Serbia. 90% of migrants residing in Serbia at the moment, which is eight almost 8,000, are uh, here in illegal manner. Lena Petrovic is a legal officer at the Belgrade Centre for Human Rights, which has been providing legal aid for asylum seekers in Serbia since 2012. But also all asylum seekers who come to Serbia and crossed by crossing safe third countries uh, like uh, Bulgaria, Macedonia, Greece, Turkey even, uh, their asylum application will be dismissed on this basis. Lena's colleague, Senkish Kiro, says that to make matters worse, the government keeps changing the rules for the people who are staying in Serbia. For example, at first it was only people who are registered and has papers uh, can uh, go to the camp. Then at one point they changed the rules and they said, OK, everyone can go into the camp, you don't have to have the papers. After a few months they changed the rule again and then they said, now you need a paper. Then they say uh, people who have paper can apply, then after that they said, OK, uh, you can stay and wait in the camp your turn for the list to the Hungary, you don't have to apply. You can have the paper, but you don't have to officially start the procedure. So every few months they're like changing the rule depending on the situation and the number of people and weather conditions and everything. So. It's not clear where this is going or what will happen to those currently stuck in Serbia. Legally speaking, the government can return anyone who came overland to neighbouring Macedonia or Bulgaria, but then what? While one could consider all the people making these journeys vulnerable in some way, young people who travel alone are even more susceptible. Unaccompanied minors in particular, you know, as young as eight, I think are a very vulnerable group because they are sent uh, or sent or leave, whatever it is, when they're very young, un unaccompanied, or in very small groups of, with other unaccompanied minors, um, in the hopes that their family will be reunited with them when they get their asylum somewhere. So those groups are really vulnerable. Unaccompanied minors are migrants under the age of 18 who are travelling alone. 
In 2016, 63,000 of the asylum applications filed in the EU were by unaccompanied minors. Most were in their mid to late teens, but around 10%, some 6,000 of these children, were aged 13 or under. And it does not always go well for them. Like last year in Europe, it was said 10,000 children went missing. But we know through facts from Oxfam and Red Cross that over 10,000 children in Italy alone are unaccounted for from last year. So the number for Europe, it isn't correct. So they're basing that on the amount of children they registered. Karen Moynihan works with the Refugee Youth Service, an organisation that helps unaccompanied children at various unofficial camps and stopping off points in the EU. In 2016, she started working with children at a camp in Calais, on the northeastern coast of France. And since that was demolished, she's continued to work with children making these journeys. She's now in Ventimiglia, a small town on the Italy-France border and a key stopping-off point on the route north. There was a huge amount of children moving through Italy um, and we came to the church and asked if it was okay that maybe we would run activities here and they agreed. Children move very fast through Italy um, and there's nobody monitoring them to make sure that they're safe. And then because then outside of Italy there is no... Children moving through Italy are generally trying to get to the other countries in Europe where they have family. France, Germany, Sweden. But the reunification process can take up to an entire year. One way to cut down that time is to try on one's own to get to the country where family is. But there are very few places along those routes that are set up to help children travelling alone. It's very hard in France. If you tried to report a child missing in France, there were times we were told to get out of the police station. They wouldn't accept it. My absolute biggest concern at the moment, and has been for the last couple of years, is children on the move. That they're not being catered for, and because they are such a marginalised group that are not seen, that it's easy for countries just to decide not to do anything about it. We need to put in systems that helps these children travel safely. We need to put in systems that allows countries to talk to each other, to like say, this child is here now. Like if, if a child registers in Italy and then there is a central European database and their name comes up that they've now claimed asylum in Germany, you can tick that child off as being safe, but instead it's just being forgotten. Any child shouldn't have to travel on their own. Any child shouldn't have to find somewhere safe to eat, safe to sleep. And then because they are on their own, there's a language barrier, there's a lack of trust, then they are hugely prey and vulnerable to people doing all sorts of bad things. So the children on the move are the... Legally, children are supposed to be protected by the state, no matter where they come from or where they are. But often the children themselves aren't visible, or states turn a blind eye. NGOs working with migrants say that the children among them often disappear because they become victims of exploitation by human traffickers, who force them into prostitution, child labour or moving drugs. And even if a child travelling alone makes it to a safe place, Karen says that a great deal of potential is being lost in not doing more to help them. These children have more resilience than anyone else I've ever met. The amount of children I've met who could already speak three different languages, who already have amazing life skills. Like, I mean, they're going to be a massive asset if they are given the support and not be made to feel like a second-class citizen because if that's how they end up feeling, they won't be able to integrate into society properly. So I think it's on all of us to make sure this happens. And it can, and there's... 
In the camp in Calais, 15% of the camp's population were children and young people under the age of 18, with no family to support or protect them along the way. So there was 10,000 people living in the camp. Um, there was 1,500 children who were travelling alone. Um, in autumn of 2016, the camp there was demolished by the French authorities. The situation was so chaotic that it left the unaccompanied children there even more vulnerable than usual. Very, very dangerous. They moved 10,000 people in four days, but they left all the miners living in the camp while this was happening. They'd left them till last. So the camp was being bulldozed and burnt down around the children. And then they had to move them really quickly, but they moved them hundreds and hundreds of miles around France and nobody knew where they were going. They weren't kept in contact with their lawyers. Um, they were made promises. They believed they would go to the UK and they didn't. And like they're still living in really bad conditions and a lot have gone back to Calais. Next on Migration Trail, welcome to Calais. I think Calais is a wonderful example of for 10 plus years now, politicians across Europe literally, you know, putting their hands over their eyes and sticking their fingers in their ears and going, la 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 la, it's not happening. Gateway to the UK. The British government are the problem because they are allowing the immigrants to stay when they come in. Why? They're already in a free country. Migration Trail is part of a 10-day real-time online experience. Go to our interactive website, migrationtrail.com, for more infographics on the issues you've heard in this episode. While you're there, you can follow reconstructed journeys based on real experiences and to see migration mapped in a whole new way. This podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and our website, migrationtrail.com. Migration Trail is made by Alison Killing, Josie Gardner, Sarah Sae, Thomas Leverstro, Asha Kamen, and Anique C. Narration by me, Marnie Chesterton. Additional fact-checking by Benjamin Thomas White. The music was composed and performed by Bora Yoon. The Migration Trail project has been funded by a Wired and the Space Creative Innovation Fellowship, the Creative Industries Fund NL, the Netherlands Film Fund, Dutch Media Fund and Arts Council England. Further support has come from the Fine Acts Foundation, Autodesk and Battersea Arts Centre.